My interest in home building began a few years ago when I renovated a summer home in the Hamptons at the end of Long Island in New York. My plan was for a total gut renovation, new kitchen, three new bathrooms, new plumbing, electric, insulation. I acted as my own general contractor and quickly learned why people aren't their own general contractors. The project took four times as long as I expected and was 100% over budget. There were two main reasons for the overruns and both of them were predictable. First, I changed scope as we went. With each reframing, I thought of a new way to configure a room, a nook, a lighting plan. And changes in scope set off a cascading series of work orders from different tradesmen that made the smallest modification significant. Second, there were scheduling challenges. The plumber couldn't begin work until the framing was done, so when the framing was late, the plumber needed to be rescheduled. Once he was rescheduled, I had to reschedule the insulation company and then the sheetrocking company. All of the workers had other jobs, which meant I faced weeks of delay before getting them back to my job. I had largely put the development out of mind until a friend of mine, also with a home in the Hamptons, told me that he was looking to tear down his house and replace it with a factory-built home. A modular home was what he called it. Sometimes you hear things and a light bulb goes off. This was one of those times. We live in an era of mass production where every item we consume is made in a factory. If a factory can churn out toasters and phones and cars, why aren't homes made in a factory? Instead of using labor in the most expensive locations for home construction, factories might be set up outside of cities where the cost of building was less. Maybe in the future, homes would be built overseas and shipped to us, much like how other types of manufacturing have moved offshore. Sometimes you look at an industry with which you have little familiarity or experience and see what's obvious about where it will be in 20 or 50 years. At that moment in time, that's how I felt about the construction space. Of course everything will eventually be built in a factory. Of course one day I will go to a website and create the design of my home. I'll choose the number of rooms and bathrooms and style of my kitchen. I'll select from a few models. There will be paint choices and maybe even the ability to apply for a mortgage as I complete my purchase. A few weeks later, a crew will arrive at the address I provided at the website to pour a foundation and grade my property. Then my house, delivered in modules, will arrive. In a few days, it will go up. Shortly thereafter, I'll move in. The whole process won't be that much more complicated than buying a car. Actually, if I lived in Northern California, there is an option not that far from what I just described. You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores current industries that are ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to explore. This is the first episode in a series about my prediction that in the near future, a majority of our homes will be built in factories. In this episode, I'll take you along on my journey as I learn about how homes have been built in the past and speak with founders of companies who aim to change the way we build single-family homes 
using kits containing prefabricated pieces. This podcast is sponsored by DigitalOcean, a cloud platform company that is simplifying infrastructure for software developers. Thousands of startups have selected DigitalOcean because of how easy it is to get up and running with their platform. As you scale, DigitalOcean will scale with you. If you're a startup, apply for DigitalOcean's Hatch program, where if selected, you'll have access to their cloud for 12 months, in addition to technical training and mentorship. You can also go to do.co forward slash predicting our future and ask the sales team for a free trial. Blue Homes is a modular home builder based in Northern California. Their process for building homes gets pretty close to the futuristic vision that I just described, except instead of selecting and customizing a home model online, you need to speak by phone with a sales representative. They offer a total of 16 models with names like the Lotus or the Breeze. The Breeze is what I think you'd expect from the name. There are two large ultra-modern boxes separated by an outdoor breezeway. Breeze has 3,558 square feet at a starting price of $1.3 million. The Origin, one of the smaller models, starts at 838 square feet for $495,000. Prices go up depending upon the types of finishes and appliances you select. Bill Haney, the founder and CEO, seems like he had been observing the mind-numbing process that was my own home renovation. The ugly truth is that to build a new house is a time-consuming, emotionally exhausting, financially endangering uh, pursuit, and a million new houses are built a year in the average market. So we, we wanted to think about a way that people could build houses that was more joyful. You know, how could we reduce the stress and um, reimagine housing in a way that aesthetically was pleasing, environmentally was sustaining, um, and the construction process itself made more sense. We wanted to make it use uh, advanced information technology tools to make it easier to participate in designing your own home, advanced construction methods to make the benefits of industrial construction apply to single-family houses. When Bill compared home building to the construction of other consumer products, he made me feel like his vision for modular construction is an inevitability. Why is it that every useful good in our daily lives. The coffee cup that I'm drinking out of, the phone we're speaking over, the book I read this morning when I, you and I were waiting to catch up, all of these things are built in factories. All of them. Even the most simplistic things. And the reason is that the quality goes up, the cost goes down, and the schedule becomes predictable. So why is the single-family house built in a field? Uh, with 12,000 parts that show up in trucks over time and workers who come in and out for periods of time they can stretch to two or three years in some cases. Clearly, Bill is enamored with the Tesla model of building an expensive product that early adopters love and then dropping the cost of subsequent models that are mass produced. This approach resonates with me. The iPhone was launched the same way. Blue homes are expensive, but meaningfully less than a comparable home built by a traditional builder. This year, they will put out 100 homes. On the one hand, that seems like a really big number. But when you put it into the broader context of the one-plus million home starts a year in the United States, it's really just a drop in the ocean. So if the future is so obvious, 
Why isn't everyone buying factory-built homes? I began my research with two objectives. First, to figure out who the leading players were in this space, and second, since none had achieved such widespread recognition that I was familiar with them, to determine what these companies would need to accomplish to become the Google of the factory-built home space. When I hear ideas for startups, I always think back to the advice someone gave me long ago. If you have an idea for a business and you can do something 10% better than the best company out there, odds are your product or service will never be heard of. And that's because 10% better just isn't good enough. You need to do something 10 times better than your nearest competitor if you're going to break through the clutter and build a great business. So what would it mean for a startup in the business of making factory-built homes to be 10 times better than traditional home builders? 10 times better probably means one-tenth the cost, or maybe a construction schedule that takes one-tenth the time, or perhaps a combination of them both. If you were able to accomplish that without any sacrifices in aesthetics or quality, then you'd have a truly great business. Before I began interviewing companies in the business of making homes and factories, I was curious to see how far back I could trace this notion of prefabricated housing. What was the first instance of a building structure that had its pieces built off-site and then transported to the building location to be assembled? A little research revealed that this was not a new concept. In fact, it predated the Industrial Revolution. While the history of virtually every other industry is marked by a narrative of manufacturing moving inside of a factory, the construction industry has had a significant head start with prefabrication, perhaps 800 years, and still so much of what is built today is built inefficiently outside of a factory. The first recorded structure with parts made in a location different from the building site was erected by the Normans, descendants of the Vikings between 1160 and 1170. In 16th century India, the Mughal Emperor Akbar the Great created his own version of prefabricated homes and movable structures that he used while traveling. As early as 1624, the British also shipped pieces for prefabricated houses to be built in Cape Ann the state now known as Massachusetts. In 1830, London carpenter Henry Manning was concerned that his son, who was moving to Australia, wouldn't have materials to build a home, so he constructed a home in pieces that could fit into cargo on a ship. Over time, he reproduced the home and sent many more of what came to be known as Manning Portable Cottages to Australia. The most famous kit for building a home was offered by Sears between 1908 and 1942. Over 100,000 homes were built from these kits. Sears offered 370 designs in its 32-year production run, including a 10-room majestic colonial called the Magnolia. The average home consisted of 25 tons of material and between 12,000 and 30,000 discrete parts, including pre-cut lumber for framing the home. The kit came with a 75-page instruction booklet. Construction of the Sears kit homes was performed by the family ordering the house with the help of friends or through hired hands like an Amish barn raising. 
Unfortunately, the Sears home building business was shuttered in 1942, just a few months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, when the U.S. government issued an order prohibiting any residential construction costing more than $200, since all lumber was now needed in support of the war effort. After World War II, returning American veterans needed homes. Levitt and Sons built a number of housing developments for these veterans, the most well-known of which was in Long Island, New York, called Levittown. Levittown houses were prefabricated in the sense that they were built away from the plots on which they would eventually sit. But the houses were not built in a factory. From a 20-acre assembly point, assembly lines of men constructed 17,000 houses and moved the pieces the short distance to the plot of land where they would be fitted together to construct a house. The company ultimately built 140,000 homes, 17,000 of which were in Levittown, New York, and another 17,000 of which were in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Other companies focused on factory-built housing after World War II, but none with the brand recognition of Sears or the distinction of constructing large towns like Levittown Sons. One other piece of history on manufactured homes before we talk about what's going on today. In any discussion of factory-built housing, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention HUD code homes. HUD is an acronym for the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development. Most people associate HUD code homes with mobile homes sitting in trailer parks across America. In 1974, Congress was concerned about the safety of these homes and enacted a National Mobile Home Construction and Safety Act now generally referred to as the HUD code. For mobile homes that are manufactured in a factory, Congress decided to exempt these homes from local housing regulations. The catch was that these HUD code homes weren't considered real property because you could literally drive off with them after you put them down on your land, or maybe even land you simply leased. When the HUD code legislation went into effect in June 1976, an entire industry was born, in large part because manufacturers could be certain that when they built something, it wouldn't be subject to local jurisdictions, judging its electric wiring or plumbing. Now here's the crazy part. In 1998, this was anything other than a niche market. In that year, 20.2% of all new houses were manufactured HUD code homes. The largest of the manufacturing companies was Clayton Homes, which Warren Buffett, that's right, the legendary investor Warren Buffett, purchased in 2003 for $1.3 billion. After the recession of 2008, the number of manufactured homes dropped dramatically, although these homes have experienced a rebound in the past year. I can't find a single instance of a HUD code manufacturer who has taken any interest in expanding into the high-end modular space or the multifamily space to build apartment buildings. So while the HUD code space may interest Warren Buffett, my focus for this podcast is on the new frontier of companies looking to reinvent the housing industry. The new entrance to the factory-built housing space could be grouped by their approaches to building. In the first category are kit builders. These are next-generation Sears-style builders 
who transport all of the pre-cut and sized pieces in a box for assembly on site. These homes are prefabricated in the sense that components are made in a factory. In the second category are the modular builders. For them, not only are the components made in a factory, but they are largely assembled inside the factory in the form of six-sided boxes or modules. Depending upon the size of a house, there may be many modules. The kitchen might be a module, as might all of the bedrooms. When I began researching for this podcast series, I set out to identify builders, architects, and academics, all focused on factory-built housing. My initial focus was on companies that constructed single-family homes inside of factories, and I was particularly looking for businesses run by technologists. Over the past 20 years, I've found that the disruptors of the biggest industries have been people with no experience in the industries they were disrupting. Steve Jobs had never worked with phones before creating the iPhone. Elon Musk had never worked with cars before Tesla. Jeff Bezos had no experience as a retailer before founding Amazon. If there was going to be a massive disruptor, the next global behemoth in this space, I thought it likely to be founded by a technologist. Acre Designs was the first kit builder I spoke with. This was a Y Combinator company. Founded in 2005, Y Combinator is a seed accelerator that attracts early stage companies from around the world and provides them with seed money in exchange for 7% equity in their startups. To date, there are at least four unicorns. These are companies valued at over a billion dollars that have graduated from the program. These include Dropbox, Airbnb, Stripe, and Zenefits. In order to get accepted into the program, you have to articulate a big idea and a big market. In early 2016, Acre Designs graduated from Y Combinator, so I figured this company was as good as any place to start. Andrew Dixon is the CEO of Acre Designs. As I spoke to him, it felt like his approach to disrupting the construction industry could have been taken straight out of the Sears 1908 playbook. He explained how his manufacturing process severely cut down the total construction time of his company's homes by essentially building and transporting walls that fit together on site. They're, they're almost like giant Legos. So there's these large panels called SIPS panels, uh, and they're up to eight foot by 24 foot, and they allow us to assemble a wall incredibly quickly, um, but they're also extremely energy efficient. So great insulation value and airtight. Um, so that allows us to get a home from foundation to roof on in two to three days. Uh, and so that's, that's a huge shift off of the typical five to eight plus week uh, period for that same process in traditional frame. Acre Designs has already built two homes in the Kansas City area, and they are in the planning phase to launch several more in Northern California. Theirs isn't a kit you would assemble with your neighbors like the Sears homes. It's designed for builders. Our system leverages existing builders almost like Uber works with their drivers. So we, we provide existing builders all around the country with these, you know, uh, what's in the simplest terms, a kit of all the materials necessary uh, and the designed uh, systems to put these homes together uh, quickly anywhere in the country. Andrew thought the cost savings for consumers would come from the much shorter amount of time it would take to build the home as compared to a traditional build. Well, the materials cost... Um, usually a little bit more, but the labor uh, can be reduced greatly. So we're, when we're building our homes in half a time, uh, obviously the labor comes with that. 
uh, and the cost of that goes down. So labor is typically about 60% of construction costs. Um, and so that was one of our first targets to see how uh, how to, to, to really shave as much out of that as possible because it's also a major uh, constraint right now for a lot of builders is they really struggle trying to find uh, enough qualified crew to build and put together these homes. The building process and business model that Andrew described were essentially the same as the ones that Sears had so successfully pioneered a hundred years before him. I wondered if Y Combinator, arguably the most successful startup accelerator in the world, focused on ideas of the future, knew about the richness of the history associated with the idea of prefabrication when they brought Acre Designs into their program. The SIPS technology, or Legos, that Andrew Dixon introduced me to was a new concept for me. And I wondered why nobody had brought up the possibility of building with SIPS when I was doing my own home renovation in the Hamptons. I saw there was a national SIPS association and decided to reach out to their executive director, Jack Armstrong. I wanted him to explain to me exactly what SIPS are and where they're currently being used. A SIP panel or structural insulated panel uh, is essentially a, a, a composite structure with foam in the middle and skins adhered to the outside. So for our, our viewers that are our listeners that are thinking about this, imagine kind of an ice cream sandwich, if you will, or a double stuffed Oreo cookie where you have a, a piece of foam in the middle and then you have some sheathing or some skins on both sides. And these panels can be uh, skinned with wood, they can be skinned with metal, they can be skinned with cementitious products, uh, you know, like a cement board or magnesium oxide skin. And uh, the real difference between a structural insulated panel and a regular panel is that the structural panel is actually a load bearing panel. So you don't need to have the two by fours in the wall or the structural steel in the wall to actually support because this sandwich panel is actually supporting the load. So, uh, uh, you know, composite technology, you know, we fly in airplanes that are built out of this kind of thing as well. But in the building construction industry, the real notion behind SIPS panels is that uh, you can have large surfaces of wall area that can be you know, assembled quickly or come from a factory controlled environment where the windows and the doors are already cut out, the electrical chases are already cut out, and then they're delivered to the site to make, you know, hotels, schools, uh, multifamily apartment buildings. And what's kind of interesting about this concept is, you know, in the world of uh, energy efficiency, um, every time you have a piece of dimensional lumber or two by four in the wall, that's kind of a place in the wall where there's no insulation. So if you kind of think of the typical house and you think about all the two by fours, every 16 inches placed or every 24 inches, you have almost about 25, 20 to 25% of the wall that's solid wood. And that's a place where you can't put in insulation. So uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, SIPS panels, in addition to the speed of construction and just the low labor issues, have really started to take off. I remember from the construction of my home, the painstaking process of framing the walls. How long, I wondered, have these SIPs been available? Oh, gosh, they were introduced back in the 50s. 
so they've been around a while. In their current form with a uh, oriented strand board, because OSB has only been around since the say 1980s. Uh, they used to use plywood on the outside of these, and then we went to uh, engineered lumber, you know, oriented strand board. Uh, so it's been well well understood and around since the, say the 1980s, and uh, so through the 90s you know, perfected, harmonized. We got in the building code in 2007. Uh, so it's an accepted practice. Uh, so it's just goes back to that notion of, uh, you can ask any building product manufacturer, uh, builders are slow to change and they're kind of risk averse, mainly because of what you said. There's so many people in the chain, in the value chain, the plumber, you have to let him, you know, know that SIPs are okay. The electrician, you have to let him know that SIPs are okay. And what has happened is anytime you do something new, everybody's worried about the learning curve. And so they charge you a little bit more on their estimate because they're like, oh, I've never put in electrical in a SIP house before. I better pad my estimate and charge a little more. The plumber, hmm, never put in plumbing in a SIP house. Maybe I better you know, pad my estimate. But you are seeing some medium and, and small uh, production home builders adopting SIPS technologies, especially some do it more in the roofing and some do it more in the walls. One recurring theme throughout this podcast series on factory-built housing will be the sluggish pace of change in the United States relative to the pace of change throughout the rest of the world. Where Americans have been so quick to adopt revolutionary technologies in almost every other major industry, in the construction space, the United States remains a laggard. Korea and Japan actually have been building SIP buildings for a long time. And uh, that's one of the areas where SIP construction, uh, you know, was adopted, not only because they had more advanced building codes, but because there was this labor shortage. But most importantly, uh, they had this automation, robotics, computerization kind of love affair. And uh, so they can put up houses in Japan in, in several weeks where it takes us several months. In 2008, the kit builder receiving the most attention in the design world was a company called Kit House. When I interviewed the founder, Tom Sandinato, he had an interesting story to tell about how the idea for Kit House sprang from his own journey building his home. I bought a piece of property in um, the Joshua Tree area of uh, outskirts, you know, Palm Springs, California. And really, again, I always had this kind of bug about architecture and really wanted to find, I had this piece of property and it was in, you know, National Park uh, boundary. I had like 16 acres on, on the park and it was in this very, very beautiful place where there was these giant boulders and um, pretty, un, you know, pretty unspoiled landscape. And I wanted to build something there, just raw land. I wanted to build something there that tread, tread it lightly on the environment, didn't want to have to move boulders or, you know, get heavy equipment in there and start out looking for an aluminum based system, construction system that might be able to do that. One of the things I found most interesting about his story was his selection of materials. Instead of using a wood frame, he chose to frame the building with aluminum so it was lighter and easier to place in a hard to access location. The interesting part of the property were in the high rocks. And I wanted to have something that I could put on a plateau up in the high rock so I'd have a rock view on, you know, four sides of this building. Here's the part where the SIPs return. Everything is pre-cut at our shop. 
So the extrusion is pre-cut, goes out for anodizing. Uh, everything is, you know, we, we make our own structurally insulated panels. So th those are made to order. Like, for instance, we're just finishing a project over in Coldwater Canyon, and they wanted the face of their SIP panels with a natural birch plywood versus a laminate. So, you know, we make those SIP panels per job, per per specification for the client. Um, sometimes we have 10 foot ceilings, sometimes they're eight foot ceilings. We take all those parts and pieces, we load it onto you know, a trailer, flatbed truck, or depending on where we're going, um, stage it and then build it. The, the SIP panel could have just as well used wood in it, right? It didn't have to use aluminum. Well, well the, the aluminum extrusion has a profile in the extrusion that's built in the extrusion that accepts this SIP panel. So. It's like an erector set. So we make those SIP panels specific to fit within our structure. And our structure as a giant erector set, piece giant you know, IKEA piece of furniture, those SIP panels fit into the floors, the walls, and the ceiling. So you have this completely insulated box. And then we pop in our glass and whatnot. From a distribution perspective, Tom figured out something that no one other than Sears seemed to do. He leveraged the power of a household brand to sell his product. Starting in 2008, Design Within Reach, a modern furniture retailer, promoted the sale of a kid house on its site. A kid house sold for between $29,500 and $44,900. But sales really never took off through Design Within Reach. Either DWR wasn't Sears, it wasn't committed to the product, or the tiny homes were too small for the price, ranging from only 100 to 289 square feet, which in most jurisdictions is below the size of a structure requiring a building permit. When DWR sold in 2014 to Herman Miller, they decided to amicably part ways with Kit House. You can still buy a Kit House direct from Kit House's website. It doesn't require a foundation. Initially, I thought homes built from kits would all be relatively small in size. Acre Design's homes range from only 1,100 to 1,800 square feet. But it turns out there are options for bigger homes. And if you're looking for a kit home that can range up to 5,200 square feet in size, you definitely need to look at what Stillwater Dwellings is doing. Currently, they only have homes in the Pacific Northwest. But founder Matthew Stannard has plans to bring Stillwater Dwellings to the rest of the United States. There's something very distinctive about the designs of Stillwater dwellings. All the homes I could find pictures of had these amazing vistas. They all seem to be perched on some elevation overlooking striking scenery. The roof is the signature element, extending in a slope from the back of the home to the front in a dramatic canopy overhanging an outdoor sitting area pointed in the direction of the best view of the property. I asked Matthew to walk me through the process of selecting a Stillwater dwellings home and what the design process entails. Often people take a, a year to come to us. Sometimes people just pick up the phone straight away. It varies a heck of a lot, this sort of education process people take them through to in order to do a high-end custom home. But um, it's about half the people have already chosen one of the 20 plans from a website, and the other 20 want us to choose it. And then we'll always modify it to some extent or another, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. It just depends on the site and their own needs. Um, so when they come, we have a three-phase a three process. And the, the first phase, 
um, is is normally like for just a, a we call it our um, design and pricing phase, and they will put down fourteen thousand dollars, and we'll go through this process of selecting a home, um, ha having its um, the, the floor plan modified, and then drop the elevations. That's the side of the home, and then when we have that down, then we'll we will we'll flesh that whole drawing set out and the specifications out with our template specifications and, and drawings and then we can get it hard priced with our vendors and also uh, we will find a on-site builder to install and, and finish building the house. When we have those drawings and specifications drawn and as, as I said there's a lot of template drawings and this is what saves us months and months because if people like our design um, our look and feel we've got all the all the draw all the, the proven details are already drawn and specified for our look and feel so it's easy to change the floor plan we had the spine and wings approach and so we can easily extend the spine, spine or reduce it or make it two stories and then sort of plug in the rooms uh, along the spine and so it's a very kind of versatile diagram uh, of, a, of a design that we have and, and we can do all this very quickly and easily without the need to reinvent the wheel as far as um, detailing goes. We're trying to make it a little, little bit more like buying, a, a, say, a Mini Cooper where, you know, you choose your car and then you can change the wheels, the upholstery, the mirrors, whatever, and, and, and sort of have, have your design, your car made very easily. To be sure, building from a kit can substantially reduce the amount of time it takes to build a house. But there is also the second approach to building, the one I referred to earlier as modular construction. Think of the term prefabricated as reflecting a spectrum of factory-built componentry. On the one end, the lightest end of prefabrication, there are pieces that are simply cut to size inside of a factory. On the other end of the spectrum is an entire box consisting of four walls, a floor, and a ceiling that is made inside of a factory. Tune in to the next episode in this series on factory-built homes, where I'll explore home-building companies that are using factories to construct entire boxes, called modules, which are then shipped and assembled on site. If you'd like to learn more about the companies featured in this podcast, as well as a few additional companies that I interviewed, go to predictingourfuture.com to access the full list of participants and all the interviews in their entirety. This is Predicting Our Future.